Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I want to be talking to a pro-life activist that I hope most of you have heard of, and if you haven't, uh, you're in for a real treat with this next conversation. And that pro-life activist is Obianuju Ikoka, who is an internationally acclaimed pro-life speaker and pro-life strategist. She's the founder and president of Culture of Life Africa, which is an initiative dedicated to the promotion and defense of the African values of the sanctity of life, the beauty of marriage, uh, the blessings of motherhood, and the dignity of family life. That description coming from her website. She uh, surfaced quite recently, actually, on the international pro-life scene, and I don't want to give too many details because she's going to introduce our conversation with a description of sort of how she rose to prominence in the pro-life movement. But her record is is already extraordinary. She's advised many African members of parliament, African UN delegates, ambassadors, and a lot of other decision makers and policy makers on life and family issues. She's also worked with African religious leaders who are attempting uh, to figure out how to oppose the onslaught of so-called Western values on their countries. And she's now been widely published and has appeared on many different television shows and radio stations. There's a one brilliant interview where she uh, basically... There's no other word uh, to use. She basically schools this uh, BBC BBC presenter on what it is that African women actually want. Uh, I don't think this BBC presenter was in any way prepared for for Obianuju to completely destroy her position and and just show her uh, how unbelievably condescending she was in claiming uh, to speak for what African women need. Uh, Obianuju has written a one book target Africa, which I cannot recommend uh, more highly, as well as a documentary uh, Strings Attached. Both of these documentaries reveal what the West is currently doing in Africa and for a much longer and more effective explanation of what is unfolding on that continent. Here is my conversation with Obianuju Ikoka. My first question uh, would be a personal one, which is how did you get involved in the pro-life movement to begin with? Okay. Um, in 2012, um, I was already living in the UK. You know, I was born and raised in Nigeria, was educated in Nigeria, came to do my master's in the UK, and then I later on uh, started as a career in biomedical science. So I was... Um, always pro-life, uh, but back in 2012, something had happened to me. I was uh, watching television one day, and I saw uh, the wife of Bill Gates, Nalinda Gates, and she was talking about her big project for Africa, well, for the developing world, really, but a lot of the countries she was targeting with this uh, thing that I saw as population control were African countries. So <laughs> that that kind of struck a chord in me, and I decided to, to write a note, you know, like to write down the reasons why it's such a a horrible idea what she was planning, her big uh, family planning uh, summit and the whole contraception thing she was doing. And uh, that uh, thing that I was writing turned out to be a 2,000-worded essay, <laughs> which I then sent to uh, someone at EWTN that I didn't even know, like, you know, because she had a show, I sent it to Harry's Antonio, but she read it on her show, and then people heard it, and it was published, and then it went viral. So that was how I really, the very first, my very first involvement with the pro-life movement was really this open letter, this thing that later became known as the open letter to Melinda Gates, because uh, it was uh, shortly after that that I realized that 
a lot of people within the Western uh, world, I just felt they don't really know much about the value of the African people. People, of course, see Africa through the lens of the international media, which is all about hungry children and famine and wars and, you know, genocide, all all of that. But I... Uh, wanted to, uh, to kind of explain to people the Africa that I come from, the, uh, how African nations are, and the fact that we are living in, in most of these co- African countries that don't have legal abortion, and people are not agitating for legal abortion. I mean, all of these things, these uh, struggles, uh, uh, you know, for and against abortion, I only came to witness it in the West when I moved out, you know, when I moved to England. Uh, because I came from Nigeria and we don't even have legal abortion. Everyone knows it's wrong and, I mean, it's ridiculous. No one is out there, you know, fighting and, and doing riots and, and, you know, wearing red robes. <laughs> <laughs> Never saw any of that. I mean, it, it, it just was uh, stunning to me that I came to the West and then found out there were countries, I mean, most of the Western countries in fact, where Abortion was legal, and um, I then realized, well, we, I, I come from a completely different world. Right. So my role since then has really been to explain to people where the Africans stand on these issues, and it's not just from my own anecdotes or my own little experience with life. Uh, at this point now, I've traveled to various African countries. I've spoken to so many people uh, in, in various um, parts of society, the African society in, in different countries. Uh, I have also gone through a lot of research work. I've gone through a lot of uh, uh, events, you know, international events that, that are dealing with Africa. And I'm really speaking from a point of, of fact that Africans exist in a completely different realm with regards to things like abortion, uh, contraception, and even like, you know, like sexuality, education, and, and the way they see human sexuality and marriage and things like that. So uh, I have been working on that since, and of course, the whole point of neocolonialism came up the moment I started uh, attending a lot of these UN events, and I saw the relationship between African countries and Western countries uh, with regards to humanitarian aid, and I saw that within those relationships, those uh, donor-recipient relationships, there was some uh, something sinister going on that Western countries, in many regards, and Western entities, in fact, it's not just countries, it's also like Western donors, like the Gates. They are working through their relationships, you know, through their aid, humanitarian aid relationships, and trying to introduce to African countries uh, sets of ideas and ideologies that are foreign to us. So if you, well, your perspective uh, is fundamentally rooted in your, your own family life and your own childhood and your own upbringing, what was what was that like? Um, what what was your childhood and family like growing up in Nigeria? I think it was pretty much normal. At least I thought it was pretty much normal until I came to the West. Right. Um, I I am you know the uh, baby number six. I'm my parents' sixth child, so I come from a regular regular African family, highly educated. My father uh, was a university uh, professor. He, he in the area of accounting. My mom was a teacher. So I come from a very academic uh, setting in Nigeria, right? So um, uh, just pretty much normal, went to a very regular school, pub, what you would call here public schools. I didn't go to like mission schools or church schools or church-related schools. I went to government schools. And yet within uh, that uh, education that I got was a lot of um, 
you know, sort of the religious studies and, <laughs> you know, there was no shying away, even at uh, you know, even within uh, government schools, there was no shying away from prayer, from teaching children about the Bible, of teaching like real religious studies, like Christian religious studies. Mm-hmm. We were having um, real moral instructions where they are teaching. I went to a girls' school anyway, where they, they taught us a lot about uh, responsibility and, you know, the human sexuality within the context of, of responsibility. That if you have this gift of sexuality, then you are responsible. And I think that's very deep uh, uh, point of divergence between where the societies come from and the society that I live in at the moment, which is the West, where they are teaching about human sexuality from a point of view of your right, right? So it's, um, if, you, if you have the gift of sexuality, then you have the right to everything. You have the right to pleasure, you have the right to whatever, you have the right to abortion, you did have the right to contraception, but that's not where I came from, and that's not the upbringing I had or the instructions I had, both at home and in school. Uh, we were taught about human sexuality from a point of view of responsibility. And that was, uh, that was for me, uh, very, uh, very formative because it gave me the foundation, uh, which I still stand upon today. And I think that's really pretty much what a lot of people, uh, got as far as I knew. Um, yes, it's not like we, you know, it's not like, uh, it's not like things, it's not like things that are not ideal don't happen. So for example, it's not like, uh, people don't cheat in, don't know of infidelities or people who are even having sex outside of marriage. Those things exist, but they are not the norm. They are not being elevated in society. People always know that marriage has the pride of place. Marriage is the ideal. Marriage should be the goal uh, of young people who want to be together, right? So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a completely different uh, society with different sets of values. Uh, and at least different sets of ideals, even if everything is not ideal, but they still continue to elevate uh, all that is good and beautiful within, uh, you know, within marriage and family life, and even as far as human sexuality is concerned. Yeah, it's actually it's actually very interesting. My wife used to work uh, for an organization in Tanzania. Uh, she worked there for several years, and so. I went there uh, with her, and I ended up just having a, a lot of conversations um, with a lot of her friends there and people that um, people that she knew. And, of course, they were really interested in what I do, which is work as a pro-life activist, but they didn't understand the job at all. Um, and when I told them that there's no laws on abortion in Canada, I remember just the disgusted look on one man's face. Um, and he said, every once in a while, um, somebody finds... Uh, you know, a baby in a dumpster in Arusha, but he said, "Here at least we know that that's evil." Um, yeah. And uh, one of the other things that they could never understand was this idea that women in the West would need to have an abortion due to economic circumstances. Um, when most he was, uh, he lived in a house that that most poor people in the West would never consider living in, and he was proudly telling me about his third child that was on the way. Um, so the mindset is is so fundamentally different, and that's one of the things that I want to get into with you. I know you were one of the people who responded immediately to French President Emmanuel Macron's comment that a well-educated woman wouldn't choose to have a big family. Um, that, uh, you know, offended me as well. My mom comes from a family of, of nine, and my dad comes from a family of 11, um, and and big families, big families are wonderful and they're beautiful. And nobody who hasn't been part of one can truly understand that. But I think that's part of what's going on here is uh, when I 
when I went to university, I, I met a lot of people who had like one or two cousins. Um, and they couldn't fathom the fact that I had hundreds of them. Um, and it does seem to me, you know, in discussions surrounding the pro-life issue, there are a lot of people who, one, genuinely believe a big family isn't possible, and two, genuinely cannot fathom the idea that a woman would want a large family. Whereas the, the statistics that you bring up in your in your excellent book, at Target Africa, which basically talks about how abortion is being imposed on Africa by the West, you went through all the statistical data and found out that like the average woman in Africa wants six children. There are some nations where they desire up to 10 or 11. How do you really That's start cool. to educate Westerners on this? <laughs> the thing is that the Westerners are working really hard to re-educate us on this. So there is now a real struggle because even among Africans who uh, the younger Africans, I'll say, those of my generation and the generation coming after us, uh, who are uh, very much educated, but not just educated, because I don't think we're even all that more educated than our parents, but they are more westernized, that's for sure, because of course we have the internet, we have cable television before that. Um, so the, those of us who are becoming very westernized are, <clears throat> are now choosing to have fewer children, because <laughs> Because that's all they know, and that's that's what they see as ideal. Um, but it, it, the regular, the regular African who has not been uh, so bombarded by the Western message um, uh, takes the, the the large family as as just normal. So as I told you, I had uh, I I was born as the sixth child in a in this uh, family of highly educated people. By the way, my my parents. Uh, quite educated and also not just that we were always within the uh, setting the academic setting we lived in a community where everybody did the similar job that to my dad so these were all professors we you know our neighbors were uh, professors and their families too and everyone had large families the smaller families were like five kids <laughs> okay, right so, right but, <laughs> So those are like the, the very uh, smaller families. It's like five kids. And um, hardly ever before you even see someone with like three kids, that, that, that may then indicate that maybe there's some infertility problems. But I, I came from this very highly academic setting. Uh, everybody around me in my growing up and formative years were from, you know, families of lecturers and professors and, and all of that. And as I said, everyone had a very large family. So uh, a very close friend of mine, even her father was a senior judge within the state uh, uh, court system, the state judicial system, and there were nine kids growing up. So you can imagine that there is no difference that, that you know, you don't, when you, at that, at that point growing up, when you see a highly educated person and a not so educated person, you can't tell the difference just by looking at their family, right? Just by saying, right. oh, you know, you have seven, you have three, so that means you're a doctor possibly. And, and but, but now you can, you can actually see the difference because there's now a, a slight difference coming up. Uh, some of my relatives who are not all that very much educated, like university educated are the ones who have Five, six children now, and those of us, unfortunately, uh, people, uh, at least people that I've grown up with, close friends and all that, who have then gone ahead to, to pursue uh, great heights in education, and they're now very westernized. They're the ones who have like three kids and two kids. Um, so I wish the West will listen to us, 
but are also at the same time wish that the Africans will get become more confident that where we come from is actually not inferior to the lifestyle of the West. You see, that if you have five or six children, it doesn't make you any less, uh, you know, um, less um, enlightened, you know, would I say, because large families are beautiful, as you alluded to. I grew up in a large family, and my father grew up in a large family, and, you know, I have, as you, just like yourself, I have so many cousins, and <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, and, and all of us know that. I mean, the, the average uh, person who is of my generation will also be in a similar situation than as myself. So we will have many cousins who are constantly attending weddings, we are constantly attending baptisms, yep. and, you know, and all of that. So it's always a beautiful thing. But then we turn around and we uh, watch this uh, very shiny HD show on, you know, on Netflix, <laughs> and then we forget, you know, we forget uh, where we come from, and we forget that what we have is actually much possibly more beautiful than than the two the family of two that we see as ideal in in western shows and and what we hear from the west so it's a two way thing and i'm hoping that uh, we you know we can our message will become stronger even as we manage to deem a bit uh, some of the toxic messages coming from the west uh, that is telling us that large families are no good it's interesting because when when I was in South Africa a couple of years ago, I remember the thing that struck me was there was abortion advertisements everywhere. I mean, oh, there was yeah. like there was abortion advertisements on stickers with the phone on, number yeah. of the local abortionist stuck on the back of yeah. traffic signs. And so, would would you say that more Western um, means more abortion now in the minds of most people in Africa? Yeah. So I don't I don't think that people in Africa actually understand how big the whole abortion thing is in the West. Right. Because we are in a different world until we come out. So even myself, before I came out of my... I mean, I was 26 years old before I left my country, you know, before I uh, migrated to England. But even as at 26, I, had, I felt that I had been as westernized as possible. So I was watching cable news. I was even while living in Nigeria. I was watching, um, you know, uh, Hollywood. It doesn't come through that abortion is that important. It, it didn't, at least at the time. Uh, we, I didn't know abortion was even legal. Uh, I, I always knew what abortion was. And a lot of these, I mean, people know what abortion is in all these African countries. But we don't understand how important it is to the average Western feminist that abortion should be legal for her and, and the entire establishment around her, by the way. So that's the media and the people in government and the, you know, the whole Hollywood. I didn't know any of that because nobody is proud of abortion. It's, you know, it's an unfortunate thing. No one is proud of it. So when you go to like most African countries, they don't realize abortion is all that important to anyone in any other part of the world. Right. But South Africa is completely different. South Africa is this, um, obviously this country that is in a very, uh, in a very specific category of its own because obviously it had apartheid up until, uh, you know, up until the 90s. So it, they are so much more uh, a Western influenced country than any other African country. It's 
So it's completely different. And because of how Africa is, it's not all that easy actually to travel from like Nigeria to South Africa. It's not. People in Nigeria don't know what's happening in South Africa. I too, uh, was very surprised, uh, when I went to, when I went to, um, Durban and I saw all these uh, signposts on the streets about, you know, pain free abortion and get your abortion, wash the womb. You know, there were all these ridiculous, um, stickers and posters that were yeah. all over the place. I, as a Nigerian, I was very stunned by it and, and, and shocked by it. So South Africa is a completely uh, different ball game, and um, it's terrible for them because they have legalized abortion. And still, I mean, all the problems remain. Everything that they were promised uh, when abortion was legalized, that it was no longer going to be uh, abortion in the alleyways, and it was, it was they were they told them women would stop dying, and you know, and teenage pregnancy that would be the end. But South Africa has now is now at a point of crisis mm-hmm. um, ever since the legalized abortion and and uh, you know if anything it's it, it, the whole legalized abortion system has emboldened uh, people who are doing backstreet abortions and everyone is kind of in that in the in the you know the, everybody's on the highway together and they're all uh doing abortion and they think it's all the same so um it's it's a very unfortunate thing so yes for the west it's more abortion um, abortion is really important now. We know that uh, people are crazy about it. It's a, it's a, it's almost a sacred thing, if I can put it this way, to the feminist movement, uh, the new feminist movement of second and third wave uh, genre. So it's um, uh, but but most Africans are still, um, let's say, very much um, unaware unaware of it, uh, of of this whole thing. Uh, and, you know, the, when I started doing pro-life work, my mom, it took her some time, really, to understand what I do, because mm-hmm. she just couldn't imagine that abortion was legal. I mean, I told her for a long time, right. for a couple of years, and, and she just kept thinking, no, you're, surely you're exaggerating. Nobody thinks abortion is a good thing. No one can do abortion in a hospital. There can't be anything called abortion clinic. And each time I'm doing something, and I'm trying to explain to her, it's always... Uh, you know, it's like educating a child who is so innocent. So a lot of, I think a lot of Africans in different countries are still at that point where, uh, they're at that point of innocence where they don't know like about like abortion clinics and, uh, legalized abortion and abortion, which is protected by, by politicians and things like that. Yeah. I had, I had a similar conversation with my grandmother when I was kind of explaining really what abortion was. <clears throat> I said, it's when somebody who doesn't want uh, their baby gets a doctor to remove it. And her only confused question was, well, who doesn't want their baby? It just oh, goodness. Yeah, that's didn't it. really register. Right. Um, yeah. So one of the things I want to, I want to get into is is both your book and the documentary, which make very similar points. The book is Target Africa. The documentary is No Strings Attached. I reviewed both of them uh, for LifeSite News. So let's strings attached. yes, strings attached. And so let's let's yes. start with Target Africa. What's the basic basic thesis of of Target Africa? Because essentially, you accuse uh, at least the progressive uh, side of the West, the segment of the West, and of course, we in the West are having our own internal civil war over who is going to win the battle over the future of of what the West will look like. But you basically make the case that. Um, physical colonization has been replaced by ideological colonization. Can you kind of flesh that out for us? Yeah, of course. So the geopolitical uh, colonization happened from about 1886, 87, um, right at the end of the 19th century when uh, Western countries gathered together 
uh, in Germany, um, in Berlin specifically, and they partitioned Africa, and they came in, they took over the country, they shared the countries among themselves. So people, people pretty much get the idea of this, and this lasted all the way to about uh, the, ni- the early 1960s, uh, when African nations began to gain uh, their independence. And let me put it in a Western context: it ca- it all came to an end by the end of the Second World War. At least by the end of the Second World War, <clears throat> the West started to shift. And, and refocus, and I think that's when a lot of the countries came to this agreement to let go of the colony, quote unquote colonies, um, in other places like Africa. So that all came to an end and we all celebrated, we all get, uh, gained our independence and people know about it, people talk about it, um, but, but we don't dwell much on it because it's all in the past. Now, if you go to African countries, um, you, you will still be able to guess who was colonized by who because the influence was so strong. So, for example, a country like Nigeria, a country like Ghana, a country like Sierra Leone, um, these were countries that had the British um, colonizing them. Uh, so we speak English, uh, so it's very easy to know, you know, who who was where. Because if you step into a country like Zimbabwe, if they're speaking English, you know, okay, the English were here. Right. But then you go to a country like Togo, you go to a country like uh, Cameroon, you go to a country uh, like Mali, they speak French and nothing else. You know, French and their tribal language, let me say. So Africa is now strongly uh, divided, not by our choice, but really uh, based on what happened to us in the past. So yes, we the very strong influence of the past is still there and the consequences are still there that we are different nations speaking different languages, but we're, even if we're neighboring, we cannot talk to one another. So uh, that's the past, though. So what is now happening is another strong influence is coming in, but in my own thoughts and in my own analysis, I think it's even much more dangerous than what happened to us in the past, because at least in the past, it was declared that we were colonies. It was declared that we were being colonized. We knew it. We knew we weren't completely free. We knew we were being an ex. We knew what the expectations were. Uh, people struggled against it. So if you know that uh, you have people who have plans for you and they are talking about you and they're making plans for you, they are leading and ruling you and determining what will happen to your nation, um, then at least you know, right? But now it's more, much more uh, insidious because we don't know uh, what is said about us, except if you go to like UN events, then you find out, oh my goodness, these people are having entire events. Uh, on the theme of Africa, you know, what will happen on Africa based on uh, comprehensive sexuality education, reproductive rights, LGBT rights. You know, they are talking about us like we we are not even there. And, you know, the Africans who are there are only tolerated if they adopt the language of the masters. You know, those that I call colonial masters, they right. are people with completely different ideologies on these various issues that have now become... Uh, you know, highly contested, as you say, even in the West, because there is no real consensus. People are cultural. 
But the problem is that those people who are on the progressive, quote-unquote progressive side, so those who want more sexual freedom, what, you know, reproductive, what they're calling reproductive rights, abortion, um, you know, LGBT things. So those who are on that side are the ones who are so powerful and influential that they're, they're also the ones who are leading an international forum. You know, so the conservative Americans are just dealing with America. Uh, but the progressive Americans are fighting on two fronts. They come in and they fight you in your parliament, in your co- House of Congress. Um, they're fighting for more abortion rights in America. But if you come to Ghana, you still find them there doing the same work. They have so much money. Um, they are fighting for influence. Um, they are fighting African laws on on things like abortion, on, you know, human sexuality, on all of those issues. And the influence is so strong. And you know how I explained what the language of the masters did to us? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's still up to today. It's still an issue. Um, it, it, I think the the those who are living in this ideological uh, warfare, I would say, uh, the effect and influence is going to affect us even much more than the language, because for many, many years to come, if we accept what they're giving us, uh, it will devastate us and have us completely broken for for decades and decades to come. So it's it's kind of interesting. I remember one quote in your book, Target Africa, where one of the African ambassadors, after another vote where Western countries were trying to push their sexual agenda, walked out of the vote saying, it's just all about sex for these people. Um, yeah. So when you're talking about like strings attached, when you're talking about essentially how these um, these NGOs, these multinational corporations, um, international Planned Parenthood, Marie Stopes, uh, the, the international abortion pushers, how do they end up implementing their agenda in African countries and how successful have they been at doing that? Okay, so how they do it, they normally come through uh, the this organization called the United Nations, which the UN uh, built its reputation as the center of morality, the center of gravity, you know, from the end of the Second World War, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, they were this voice of morality, the center. They, they, they were the ones who were the standard, the gold standard of all things that was right and all things that was Human rights, right? So, uh, so these Western countries, unfortunately, have reached the point where they are needing the agenda of the United Nations, and then they pull the UN away from its moral center to the left. I mean, they are to the left on all issues. So, they, the African countries who joined the UN later on than everybody else, uh, but they're thinking that the UN is exactly what we've always known the UN to be, you know, the center of morality, the voice of conscience, uh, the, the, the place of reference. And then they've uh, all gotten there to find out that instead the UN is, you know, is another, it's, it's nothing other than a, a, a powerful monster, uh, that is there just to do the will, uh, of, of Western nations, the Western ruling well-being nations. Uh, that's how they have managed to at least come into most countries, uh, because the UN 
can go into any country. UNICEF has projects everywhere, UNFPA, uh, UN Women. They can go into any country and then, you know, do what they want. So through those uh, through those links and networks, uh, these other Western influences have come in. But it's not just that. It's also kind of transformed now because they... African countries are having bilateral relationships with various Western countries. So, for example, uh, you know, let's just say, for example, an African country like Kenya will have a, bilat- a bilateral relationship with the United Kingdom. And uh, it's a relationship between the two of them. And money flows through. And you know which side the money comes from and which side it flows to. So mm-hmm. the UK government has set up various projects there. And they say it's education projects. They are health projects and they are in all these, uh, they, they, their money has seeped into every, cr- uh, you know, every cranny and crack of the, of the Kenyan uh, society or any other African country. It, it's, well, it's, they, they, their money goes into almost everything that we do. Now, how they are operating is that they come into, say, for example, an education program that they are sponsoring with millions of pounds and millions of dollars. And instead of it being about pure mathematics and, you know, chemistry and uh, English language and all the things that children should learn, uh, they are teaching sexuality education. They want to introduce uh, new courses and new new uh, new uh, modules of things that we didn't know or have before. Uh, there was a project I saw that was being sponsored by Canada because I know you're, Cana- you're, you're Canadian. Uh, this was... Uh, Back in 2017, but this is a project actually that will be running till I think 2022. It's a, a project between uh, Canada and Ethiopia, so they're doing it through UNICEF, and it's a it's a, a nutrition project. But believe it or not, this is a nutrition project that is targeting specifically adolescent girls, as the document the Canadian government document says, it's uh, targeting uh, adolescent girls in schools and out of schools. But when you read it carefully, you see that. Part of what that nutrition and food project was about was also teaching girls about family planning, teaching girls about reproductive health, uh, sexual and reproductive health. So this is going to be a, a food project, but a food project is only the is only the cover for it. Underneath it, underneath it, it's a more sexual uh, and sexualization project. Uh, which Canada is paying for, and it's in the millions of dollars. It, this project uh, is, uh, is, I think, up to up to seventeen. If, if I remember correctly, is about seventeen million dollars flowing through. So this is exactly how they sift through everything. If they say they're coming in to do some health project, and our health ministries open the doors to them, they come in, and then there's, they say they want to talk about maternal mortality, and next thing they're talking about abortion. And abortion rights and how if abortion is legalized, then maternal mortality will reduce. So they are in everything, but it's almost too late now because um, at the moment they come in for these uh, kind of grand uh, inaugural projects like education and health, then they, they open up their agenda and it's too late by then because the money has already gone through, uh, the project has already been promised. You know, there's all these things. The groundwork has already been done. Now you've asked whether they've been successful or not. There is some success that we are seeing. At least the success that they have had is at the point of influence that many of these donors can walk into an African uh, African uh, government official's office. 
So members of our cabinet, our health ministers, education ministers, how is it that somebody can just pick up their phone from London and be able to get them directly? Even we as Nigerians cannot get access to some of those leaders. So our donors have gotten success to the point where they they do have um, more exposure to our leaders and more uh, face time, if I can put it that way. They have more face time with our leaders and they have more access to our important institutions in our various countries. But at the point of grassroots and society, uh, I would say I would say it here and now that I think that they have failed at every juncture and every point. Uh, they have tried to get abortion legalized in most of the African countries now. It, uh, we've seen failure after failure after failure. The last success they had, if I can call it that, was in 2014 when Mozambique legalized abortion. And since then, no other African country has agreed to legalize abortion. It has failed either in parliament or uh, it has failed uh, it to be law when the bill has passed. And it has failed to even make it to some parliament. So they, they failed at various points. And whenever people are polled in, in any of the African countries, you still find that majority of our people are still quite traditional and conservative on, on, on these various issues. Wasn't there one instance in which uh, an abortion law was passed and then um, the uh, the government was actually forced uh, to retract that legalization? Yes. Yeah. So there are, there are actually a number of things that happened. There was one that happened in my own country and my own state where the, the bill was passed in secret uh, and the, the law was signed. Now, that was successfully done and done in secret because it was passed uh, under the guise of an anti-violence bill. So it was uh, something like uh, anti-violence against women. So it was this whole big document about how you know, if you beat up a woman, this is what you will be, these are the consequences. And so it was meant to be a good thing. It was meant to be a bill that was to protect women. But hidden somewhere in a small paragraph there, where they talked about, uh, you know, woman sexuality, uh, then they, they fit in a nice abortion segment there. It wasn't nice at all, but this was a, a segment that was essentially going to legalize abortion. And this entire bill then passed. Uh, and then it was exposed uh, a few years later. And once it got exposed and we got a copy of the bill, a huge campaign was done for about a week and the whole thing was retracted. Uh, that was great and that was a huge show of, of our pro-life stance. There was another one that happened in Sierra Leone where uh, an abortion bill was brought in as a private member's bill. So it was brought in by this uh, female MP in parliament. Uh, at first, she couldn't get it passed, but then there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, background work that was done and, and behind the scenes work that was done. And they rallied all the MPs together, whatever it is that they gave them, however they managed to convince them. But in December of 2015, they managed to pass an abortion bill, a quote-unquote safe abortion bill uh, in Sierra Leone. Uh, what then happened shortly after was again another show of the pro-life power of the African people because the religious leaders together jointly, this was Christians and Muslim leaders, walked uh, into the president's office and they told him that uh, he shouldn't sign the bill uh, into law. So they uh, they made a, a whole case about it, how the people in the towns and villages didn't want uh, anything to do with an abortion, abortion bill. 
So the president then held back, and of course that expired. So that was uh, back in 2015, 2016, uh, and I did go to Sierra Leone at the time, and it was uh, quite a uh, quite an interesting thing to go through the various uh, parts of the country, speaking to people in town hall meetings, mm-hmm. and to see how much the people were against the Boston really. So um, yeah, so every time that these people try, they fail. They fail. So they they. And at this point in time, they are now uh, we're seeing things like judicial activism playing out in a place like Kenya, where the uh, you know Western Western NGOs are sponsoring court cases against uh, our government institutions. That would then essentially mean if these court cases are won, it will liberalize abortion. So they're trying what they have done in in Western countries like United States, where they got abortion through the courts. Um, and I'm hoping that they also fail at that point, because I think that's the next strategy that they're trying. So pu- public opinion in Africa is still very much opposed to abortion. Um, but yes. how is Marie Stopes and, and, and other organizations bringing abortion in covertly? You address this quite extensively in, uh, in, in, your, in your documentary, Strings Attached, about how the abortion industry, the international abortion industry, has various methods of essentially performing abortions in countries where it's illegal anyways. And we've recently seen Marie Stopes get kicked out of African countries after getting caught doing just that. Yes. So they managed to do that because uh, when they come into an African country, Marie Stopes, International Transparency Federation, they're coming in and they're coming in with under the label of family planning, reproductive health organizations, Nobody in these countries have heard of them before. So again, uh, I go back to this point where a lot of, well, many Africans uh, are still at that point where they haven't been westernized. They wouldn't hear the name Marie Stokes and immediately understand that it's an abortion organization. They wouldn't hear the name Planned Parenthood and it would ring a bell. We've never heard of those things before. Never heard of these organizations, even as, as enlightened and educated as I was until I came to the UK. Um, so people don't know them, and people will not recognize the logo. And so these organizations come in and set up shop at family planning organizations. They set up uh, their mobile clinics. They are going into hospitals. They're going into villages, and they're going to all kinds of places, offering women, you know, um, counseling, counseling on family planning. And that's how they they they, they strike root into. Uh, various societies and various communities, but once they are established, uh, then they get they get to send out, you know, they get to uh, send out signals on really what they're about. Uh, they it it spreads really fast. Uh, that where you go to quote unquote take care of a pregnancy that you don't want is Marie Stokes. Uh, sometimes even they have gone as far as putting things up on social media that anybody who reads it will know that it's a veiled advert for. Uh, you know, for abortion, if you're having, you know, if you, if you, they put things like if you go to a nightclub and you meet this cute guy and then you, things get out of hand and you find out a month later you're pregnant, don't worry, we'll take care of you. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, it's not about prenatal care. It is about abortion. They are sending out messages and message, you know, messages like this spread really fast, especially among young people, especially among university kids in different African countries. Uh, so they have uh, managed to get themselves this reputation as the the place to go uh, where you want to take care of things, and they they even have like help, you know, 
toll-free lines where you can phone through and and uh, get advice or get uh, medicine for um, for abortions, even in places where abortions are illegal. And I know this for sure because we have made some of those phone calls. I have arranged for phone calls to be made, and you know, people saying to Marisol, uh, "I'm pregnant," and then they're immediately offering abortion. It's not. It's not even a joke. So, and that is uh, well documented in strings attached because we uh, record and capture some of those things and um, we expose it right there. And strings attached have, have managed to show it in various places, including a, a couple of uh, parliaments, uh, because people don't, still don't know uh, the extent of, of what these organizations are doing because the organizations are working in two different worlds and they are uh, banking on the fact that People are not crossing the divide. So when they are in African countries, they are completely, they try to look completely different, but then we see them here as well. Cause I live here in the UK and I know what my research is about. I know they are a purely an uh, abortion organization. Uh, they are the place where we go for life. They are the ones fighting for bubble zones and for pro-life people to be silenced completely in, in the UK. So thank goodness that I, I live in the two worlds and I know them in their two incarnations. So what I've tried to do in the documentary is to show their faith on the two sides. Um, and I'm hoping that also at the end of the day, uh, we get to see an end to some of these organizations. And uh, that will actually impact also on our fight against abortion because uh, these organizations are some of the uh, the biggest providers of uh, abortion uh, across different countries. So what do you think the impact of, of, of your book and, and your uh, and your documentary and all the accompanying activism has been so far? Because it seems like you've been everywhere over the last five years or so. <laughs> it feels a little that way, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Yes, so I'm hoping that... Um, that we that the message will 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 resonate with people. So the problem that I I found when I got into the pro life movement when I I came into the pro life movement seven years ago was my um, observation that there was no the the message wasn't going out at all. So we we know what abortion is. We know the fight we're having in Western countries. Abortion has been legal for all these many years. So I saw I saw pro-life movements that knew exactly what they were about. I saw a pro-life movement in the UK that knew what it was about. The one in Canada knows exactly what it's about. People know who they're fighting, what they're fighting against, uh, why they are even bothering to fight. Uh, but then in Africa, it's completely different. Uh, but I also saw that like these NGOs, you know, International Transparency Federation, Marisol International, DKT International, which is not very well known, but should be well known because they are also big abortion, uh, you know, big abortion organization. Uh, IPAD, which is a huge abortion lobbying organization that is American and yet, uh, you know, is doing a lot of damage in African countries with their abortion lobbying. So I have seen so much, uh, being in the, being a look from this end of things, but also just being rather alarmed that in my country and in other African countries, no one seems to know any of these things, but it hasn't stopped the organizations doing their work. It hasn't stopped International Planned Parenthood Federation doing what they do and, and trying to, you know, work on uh, just trying to convert our media to them, trying to change language, trying to, they're doing all sorts of things. 
So my hope is that the book, uh, Target Africa, the documentary strings attached, and everything that I do, you know, working in different places and trying to intervene and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, contribute my own analysis in various places is really just to get people to what I'm seeing and, and bring an end to it because I don't believe that um, it will be difficult. I don't believe it will be difficult to get Marisol and International Conferences Federation, for example, out of Africa. I don't believe that they, they are as established in African countries as they are in Western countries where they have even politicians defending them. As a matter of fact, what I see are organizations that are very vulnerable uh, where they stand in African countries because the the, uh, the society is so against the public opinion is so against what they are doing. So they, everything they're doing, they're doing in secret. They are hiding, they're lying all the time, trying to make it seem like, they, you know, they are okay, they're doing what, they're standing by the law. And it can be easy to get them out, and I think they have to be established. So since they haven't established, this is the time. This is the time. I think this is the time when we can get them out. Mm-hmm. This is the time to fight them before they... They, they build a strong coalition for themselves and for their, you know, for their, all their horrible work of death, uh, that they are doing wherever they are. I just want the message to go out and I want more people, um, to, to act, you know, to act, uh, in a timely manner before we get to that point of, of legalization of abortion. Because at that point then, then it becomes a really fierce fight as we are seeing happening in various Western countries. So what is the impact of of the American abortion debate, for example, with all these new heartbeat bills passing? What impact has that had on the abortion debate in Africa? Oh, well, a lot. Actually, uh, it is it is actually in so many ways. It's, it's very, very important what is happening now in, in America, particularly. Because for what um, I had mentioned earlier to you, something that we are very exposed to uh, uh, as people. Uh, it's cable television and uh, international news and CNN and BBC. We are watching all these things all the time. Before I left Nigeria, we never really heard more about abortion. I, that's how I didn't know um, that abortion was so much accepted in Western countries. Now, what is happening now is putting the media uh, beyond their comfort zone because the media is now venturing into... Uh, a point beyond the point of news to the point of activism. Uh, a lot of people on the on the CNN networks and BBC they are now coming out plainly and speaking openly in support of abortion. And I think that in this way, people in African countries get to hear these things. They get to see this is what CNN is about. This is what BBC is about. This is what the West. You know, this is what at least some people in the West are about. This is the kind of culture of death that they are protected. Right. So the what is happening has put them at that point where they have now chosen to be activists. That's one way. But secondly, it also sets an example for African leaders so um, that in Western countries there is a fight going on. That once you legalize abortion, then you have to get to this point of fierce fight and. Who wants to do that? Because people who are lobbying for abortions in Africa, they are doing it so lightly. They are trying to give us the abortion life. You know, they're telling us things like, let's just have it in cases of rape. Let's just have it, leave and let leave. 
But I need people in Africa to see, and they are now beginning to see it at least a little bit more with what's happening in America. I need them to see that abortion, legalized abortion, turns politicians to be crazy people. It makes them crazy. It makes them, uh, you know, it can bring out the worst in them because people that ordinarily you would have thought are nice people, you then all of a sudden hear them talking about abortion, and then you see the, you know, you see the depths of darkness within uh, their ideology. At least. So I'll give you an example. When I was growing up, I knew about the Clintons. We watched them from a while I was in Africa when, Clinton, when President Bill Clinton was the president. And I didn't, not that these people were for abortion. I didn't even, you know, we all thought <laughs> at the time that these were all like moderate people. We, a lot of Africans admire President Obama. But the one thing that can open people's eyes is when you then hear them talking about abortion. When you see them even uh being so adamant in not protecting babies who are born during abortions. You know, you hear of these things where you see people actually voting against uh medical care for abortion survivors. So you we are seeing all the extremes, the whole abortion extremes and ex- abortion extremism which is uh happening now and which is cropping up and I think it's all due to what is happening. We are seeing Hollywood out in the uh, horrible dark colors. They are all coming out. They're contributing to the cause of abortion. We are seeing people boycotting uh, states and and uh, legislators who are, you know, who are trying to defend the life of the unborn. So this is a whole new era, and I, I think that uh, what is happening in the tightening of these laws. Uh, you know, I'm t- trying to take America back to where it was before, which is really the point where America believed that every life was sacred and every life was uh, to be protected. Uh, so we we are seeing what's happening in the fight, and it's um, it's resonating, and it's also I think it's a, a very strong foundation for the, the global pro life movement because we are getting a lot of inspiration from it. Final question, what do you wish everybody in the West knew about what is going on in Africa with regards to abortion? That they are part of it, that I want everybody in the West to know that as long as they are paying taxes, they might actually be involved in exporting things like abortion uh, to African countries, everybody. So if you are in America, United States Agency for International Development, for many years during the Obama administration, was very much involved um, in in sponsoring organization abortion organizations. So at the time, the Mexico State policy uh, was uh, removed by President Obama. So you were part of it. You were part of. They were using your tax dollars to fund all that. They still are using tax dollars to fund all kinds of things in African countries. If you are British and you, uh, of course, are paying taxes, the Department for International Development is the government office, which is so much involved in the exportation of abortion, so you are also part of it. If you are Canadian, very much so since the Trudeau administration, uh, the government has been involved in these kinds of projects that I told you about. You know, they say they want to uh, give emphasis to feminism, but what they actually mean when you read the, the fine print is that they are going to be giving African nations uh, food projects, for example, for children that actually have underneath it condoms and contraception in Fused into it, the uh, the Canadian government now is giving money to abortion organizations as well. 
I want everybody to know is that uh, they are one way or the other involved. That you're not African doesn't mean that you are exempt. In fact, very much uh, this is very much your fight. And I would like everybody who listens to this to just, if they do one thing, is to watch my 50-minute documentary called Strings Attached uh, and get every like get the full information if you can also if you also have time read my book target africa uh target africa is available on amazon.com strings attached is available through the website strings attached film.com strings attached film.com if you watch the documentary i assure you it will be an hour that you would know uh you've invested really well in so it's you you your uh, in this and how what your role could also be in ending uh, the crisis. Anywhere else that our listeners can find your work? Uh, yes, cultureoflifeafrica.com, and you can also find me on Twitter every day, every hour of the day <laughs> at Obianuju, o, at O-B-I-A-N-U-J-U. I'm actually quite active on Twitter, and I love it when people just tweet at me because I pick up a lot of those as well. If you want to tell me something or ask me something, uh, you can just try that on Twitter, and you might just be able to reach me directly. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to explain Thank all you. this. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me on. This has been amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Obi Anuju Ikoka, African pro-life leader, author, documentary filmmaker, and also podcaster. I hope you enjoyed listening to her story, and I hope you're inspired by her work. One of the things that I love doing on this podcast is talking to pro-life and pro-family leaders from right around the world, uh, learning their stories, learning about their work, and giving you an idea of what's going on out there on the front lines of the culture wars. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast this week. If you want to listen to past episodes, head over to lifesitenews.com, and I really hope you'll join us again for another conversation next week. Bye for now.